So this morning is a good example of how you can get tunnel vision. <laughs> <laughs> I am prone, as I am sure many others are. And that is part of the reason why I titled this sermon, Come and Behold Him, The Snake Crusher. Because maybe it might help some of us who get a little bit of tunnel vision about what Christmas is all about, when really there's more sometimes. What is the most momentous event in our nation's history? I would contend that without contest, no other event comes close to the Civil War. In terms of how it shaped or reshaped the national character and structure, the Civil War can be seen as, at the same time, necessary, understandable, and yet catastrophic. Catastrophic not only due to the horrible price paid in blood, but because many of the issues that lay behind secession and many of the legal and political problems, cultural and social problems created by it, were never resolved. Though the vilest and most well-remembered bone of contention, slavery, was ended, the end of the Civil War did not heal the soul of the nation. Many, even in that time, could not see a way forward due to the fractures in society and the trespasses upon liberty and justice that the war necessitated. And it's shocking to know that we can trace many of today's disputes in one form or another back to similar disputes over which our country nearly destroyed itself, all while acting upon well-reasoned, pious, and completely contradictory justifications. The Civil War did not cause all our troubles, but neither did it resolve that many. Our issues go much deeper than that. More than anything, the Civil War revealed how much division and hostility even a people united by the highest of ideals can have. So how do people lay such issues to rest? Can we? As we continue through Advent, the season of peace, and joy, and hope, we are seemingly surrounded by proofs that run counter to the narrative. Our nation is consumed and tossed on wave upon wave of strife and division. Our church is building a counseling ministry that can't hope to meet the vast demand even of this broken city alone. Our own lives are awash with chaos and hurt. If we're not in the middle of it, we know someone who is. What difference does a story, even a true story, about a baby in a manger make? Let's reflect this morning just how large a matter it is that Jesus came as a baby, laid in a manger, on how something humble and small is truly world-altering. I hope that we can grasp the magnitude of this moment in history, not just as an expression of God's love toward us, but as the work of a holy and righteous God who has provided the solution to the dysfunction and pain of the world and who is bringing all things under his own dominion. God, we desire that you speak this morning. If they are not your words, they are not the words of life. And if we cannot hear them, there is no life for us. Give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 3. 
the fall of man. Not a very Christmassy scene, but there's no Christmas without it. When reading the story of Adam and Eve's sin, we become spectators of the ultimate human tragedy. We see the loss of God's perfectly created order as the curse takes effect. It is immediately apparent that the fulfillment that Adam and Eve expect from this fruit is a lie. Instead of whatever fanciful godlike power and satisfaction they imagined, shame and fear are the immediate consequences. We read that the relationship between God and man is damaged. Adam and Eve hide from God, their loving creator and companion in the garden. And Adam and Eve's relationship is damaged. Adam's response to God's questioning is to blame Eve. Peace has been removed from human relationships and from humanity's relationship with God. God's response to the brokenness of his world is decisive, but it is also proportionate. The consequences of sin are deep, and God immediately lays them out. And we see that the remainder of the chapter and of Genesis showcase the bitterness of what we've lost by defying God. Even so, we find in Genesis 3 ample reason for hope. After addressing the sin and specifying its consequences, God clothes Adam and Eve in garments of skins to cover their nakedness. This act alone is worth a sermon or a sermon series. God immediately begins operating within the parameters of the fallen, death-filled world that mankind has chosen for itself and shows grace. God doesn't go back to the drawing board. Neither does he need some time before he can put up with Adam and Eve. God carries on being their loving father, providing what they need, not because they deserve it, but because that's who he is. Even before he does this, though, God declares the promise of redemption. Remarkably, the first gospel message spoken in Scripture is spoken as part of the curse. And rather than being a direct expression of love, it is closer to a declaration of war. In verse 15, God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Many familiar with this passage and with the gospel will be quick to see Jesus in these words. The language is very specific, that there is a singular he who will accomplish the bruising of the serpent's head, a phrase understood to mean a fatal wounding. What Satan has helped set in motion, God is going to put a stop to. The enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between his offspring and hers, is the description of a spiritual reality, that heaven has gone to war with hell. God is acting in wisdom and power, shaping the course of history as a testament to his sovereignty, reclaiming his creation as only he could, and ultimately putting a final and eternal end to rebellion. Jesus is the means. 
And Christmas is where Jesus breaks in upon the despair of the world and changes the entire equation. Jesus is the personification of God's love, a stark contrast to the enmity, the hatred, the hostility that has defined the world for so long. And this is so beautifully displayed in the Christmas story, in how God became flesh, humbled himself, and dwelt among us. To condescend to such a degree for our sake should, should stir up the highest sentiments of admiration and gratitude in us, and they are rightly at the core of the joy of Christmas. He came to love, to heal, to teach, but he also came to make war. Jesus is love, but he is also God's justice. Jesus is the measure by which all creation will be judged. The person of Jesus, the message of Jesus, and the redemptive work of Jesus are God's ultimate and final response to sin. Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy. It is God foretelling Satan's fall and his own victory. Now, when I say response, I don't mean that God didn't see this coming. He's not being reactionary. And when we understand from Scripture God's all-knowing nature, we see that he must have known that Adam and Eve would sin, that his creation would be subjected to corruption and death. And if we are truly treating God as God, then we must again be confounded and humbled in admitting that the wisdom of God allowed it to be so. But in allowing it to be so, Jesus was always part of the plan. Galatians 4, 4 states that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. You can imagine the fullness of time as a counter, a timer counting down. God knew the day and the hour when he would launch his war-winning campaign to reconquer the earth. Jesus is not a desperate bid. He's not a gamble. He is the perfect self-expression of the unchanging God amidst the corruption of his creation. Just as God communing with mankind in the garden was his perfect self-expression before the fall. And just as God reigning unchallenged with Christ seated at his right hand is to be his perfect self-expression for eternity. Jesus was always part of the plan. And coming as he did within time, we can see that every earthly event from the time of Genesis 3 to the coming of Christ is part of the advent. The history of the Old Testament is the saga of the long war between Satan and his offspring against the lordship of God over creation. And every story is presented as inarguable evidence that Christ is so desperately needed. In the time of Noah, man had fallen almost completely in with Satan. Their every inclination was toward wickedness and depravity. But God made war, cleansing the earth with a flood. Even after this, the pervasive enmity stoked by the devil and staining every human heart continued to rage against God's plan. It rose to try and undermine Abraham's faith, to tear Isaac's family apart, 
to corrupt and murder Jacob's sons and starve his family. Satan and his offspring sought to enslave or kill the people God had rescued for his own glory among the nations. Hostility undermined Israel's leaders, tempted its people into idolatry, caused civil war, and led to exile and scattering. But Jesus was coming. Every failing of man was a proof that we could not end this war by ourselves. Every act of God was a promise that he was still here, still caring for his creation, still showing them his goodness, even when they would not acknowledge his lordship. And Jesus was the fulfillment. All God's promises and every expression of his perfect nature coalesced into the son of the virgin. This baby was and is the word. God's word made flesh. God's proclamation of ultimate supremacy in living form. From his first fragile cries in the stable to his last fond farewells to his disciples, as his resurrected body ascended into heaven, Jesus spoke what God has always spoken from before creation. I am. I am the creator. I am the Lord. I am holy. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the beginning and the end. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I am the one who will crush the snake beneath my heel. And he did it. Jesus overcame the temptations of the devil, overcame sin, overcame death. He crushed the serpent by being crushed. I can't help but wonder if part of what is meant when Scripture says that God put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman is that he put something in us that would resonate so strongly with this idea of winning by losing. It is a value or an ideal that runs exactly contrary to the devil's way of operating. There is no nurturing in Satan's kingdom, no care, no love, no sacrifice. Those who are of their father, the devil, seek self-glorification at the expense of whatever or whoever hinders. But even among those who do not call Christ Lord, self-sacrifice still seems to be something that is almost universally admired. The firefighters that went into the World Trade Center. The child that stands up to an abusive parent to protect their family. The person who pays another's debt. When our parents and spouses and siblings and children go off to war to protect us. These are the kinds of people and situations that grab us forcefully, that make us hope perhaps not that those situations would be ours, but that we could be so brave and loving and self-sacrificing. This is why the gospel is such good news. It is the story of God meeting the needs we don't even realize we have. It is the story of God making the ultimate sacrifice. This is also why Isaiah 53 is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. 
not because it makes me feel good, but because it always confronts my self-delusion that I've got this or that I can figure this out. It always reminds me just how costly my sin is. It always brings me back to how amazing Jesus is. No other hero among men can compare to Jesus. In becoming human and entering the world that raged upon the earth, Jesus laid himself open to all the hurts and risks of being human. He was ridiculed. He was despised. He was rejected. He was tempted just as we are. Not some fanciful storytelling temptation. Not some wheeling and dealing by a comic used car salesman devil with a nasally voice that Jesus scoffed at. Real, heart-challenging temptations that gnaw at the mind and resonate with our deepest desires and make us feel crazy for not giving in. Jesus experienced those. Yet he did not sin. Though sinless, Jesus was arrested, tried, sentenced, mocked, spat on, harassed, whipped, and brutally murdered for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. Don't miss the magnitude of Christmas. For a silent night, it was pretty loud. Angels sang, shepherds proclaimed, and creation resonated with the vibrations of prophecy uttered long ago and now fulfilled. The Lamb of God had come, born to be the sacrifice, born to take our place, but also born to defeat our enemy by dying and by rising again. It's so sweet to look back and see what God has done. We see the testimony of his goodness throughout history. Christmas is a day whose magic did not begin with Santa Claus, but has been testified to by millions as a time where the love of God has blazed among humanity, breaking down even the hostility of war. We see the impact that Christ has had up to this day on countless people, changed, freed from lives defined by hostility to God and to each other. And hopefully we have seen some of the joy and beauty of Christmas reflected in our own lives as well. This year, 2022, we can live in the promises of Christmas. We can know that God is Emmanuel, that he is still with us, and that in the Holy Spirit, he is closer than ever. We can find the marvelous truth that just as Christ spoke in his earthly ministry, he is even now in heaven speaking on our behalf, advocating for us in the light of what he accomplished. And we can celebrate that in accomplishing the defeat of sin on the cross, Jesus has opened the way for us to follow his example of love, even while living in a hostile world. Join with me this morning in celebrating. Our concluding hymn finds its origin in the poem Christmas Bells by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow wrote amidst the, his own personal grief and surrounded by the tragedy of the American Civil War. It was the consequences of living in a world full of sin's pain and hostility that for a time 
crushed his desire to write poetry. But it was the same reflection that we take part in today that stirred within Longfellow the words that have since been recited and then sung as one of the most glorious of Christmas hymns. That God is not dead, nor does he sleep. Far from it. The war is still raging, but it is already won. The victory is assured, and our sinful hearts cannot separate us from drawing near to God. Let's stand this morning and rejoice that in Christ there is and will be peace on earth and goodwill to men. Thank you.